Hi. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is uh, psychotherapist and best-selling author Jonathan Robinson. He's author of More Love, Less Conflict, a communication playbook for couples. Two weeks into Donald Trump's pregnancy, pregnancy. I love that. Two weeks into Donald Trump's presidency, the first casualty hit: the initial news report of a married couple splitting over Trump politics. Thirty percent of married households contain a mismatched partisan pair, so it's all too easy to get upset if your spouse is your political opposite. Jonathan Robinson says it's time to stop letting politics get in the way of romance and love offering highly practical communication strategies to dissipate the tension, get on the same page, and ramp up the love. He's featured on The Oprah Show, USA Today, Newsweek, and the LA Times. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Catherine. This should be fun. This should be fun. Uh, This is a topic, I guess, this is near and dear to everyone, and obviously we're not just going to be talking about, necessarily just talking about folks who are in mixed political marriages, as you describe it, but uh, just folks in general in terms of relationships. But let's start out with the context of, uh, because I think it's very interesting, and I've noticed this with friends and with colleagues. I mean, I think you're really hitting on something. We really have an issue with couples who have a mixed political marriage, Republican, Democrat. Uh, there's a lot of tension and a lot of contention. So how do we, I guess, first of all, how do we reconcile that? What do we do about it in the context of your book and being able to communicate better with our partners or our spouses? Well, you know, we have it in certain marriages, and we certainly have it in the country, this incredible polarization where uh, kind of everybody feels mad at each other and nobody is listening. So I think what we need to learn both individually and as a culture is how to understand people who have different views than us. And that requires some curiosity and some very simple methods so that you can resolve all that, get back to a place of love. Getting back to a place of love. Okay, so that's the goal, whatever the tension is in the relationship or in the marriage, right? Well, that's my goal. <laughs> you know, hopefully, <laughs> it used to be that my goal in my marriage was to be right and to be self-righteous, and that didn't work so well. So I, I decided, what do I really want? And what I really want is the same thing I think most people want, which is they want to feel understood. They want to feel uh, empathy. Um, or have empathy from their partner, and they want to feel love because that's the most important experience uh, human beings can have. Well, that may be true, but we're not doing it, I think, as you have pointed out, or and even as in, my, in the intro. Uh, we don't seem to be able to do that. Couples are really not able to, I guess, empathy is, is, is a, empathize with one another. You said you always wanted to be, let's take you and your marriage, you always want yeah. to be right. You always want to prove that you're that you're that you're right, and I think that's what couples get locked into this. But which would fit very well in this political marriage too, um, in terms of arguments and discussions. So, how do we overcome it? I mean, what are I guess as you discuss in your book? I mean, what are some of the main points? We're not empathetic. We can go through there are several things that you talk about in terms of what we mm-hmm. 
aren't able to... Well, you know, the first thing is to see what clearly doesn't work, and and blame never works. You know, I, I never told my wife everything she's doing wrong, and then she said, oh, my gosh, I now see that. Well, yes. thank you for showing me the errors of my ways. You know, that I'm batting zero for a thousand on that. And yet we keep on blaming each other, thinking that it will finally uh, bring up, you know, trigger a light in our partner. Well, that doesn't work. So when you realize that doesn't work, what does work is trying to understand your partner, trying to give them empathy. Empathy, you know, a good example is Oprah. You know, Oprah, um, who I got to know pretty well by being on her show a bunch, uh, she was at the bottom of the barrel of our society, never lived in a house that even had a toilet, was raped twice by the time she was 14, had a stillborn child, all that, and then ended up being the most loved person on the planet. So I asked Oprah, how did that happen? And she said, it's all about communicating. It's all about showing you understand people and that you care. And if you can do that, good things happen. And I agree, but most people don't know how to do that, so the book, uh, More Love, Less Conflict, is really simple methods for showing people exactly how to do that in 20 seconds or less. All right, 20 seconds or less, how to communicate and how to show other people you care. I want to backtrack a little, um, just based on what you said mm-hmm. that Oprah said. Like, why, do, why don't we do that? What is it? What's it in our culture or our society that we get to the point when we want to let's say, have some kind of a committed relationship that we just aren't able to communicate and that we don't have these skills? What, what gets us to, why don't we? Well, we never learn them in this society. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never took a class on communication in school, and I'm a psychotherapist. You know, I took five years of math, but they never required a class on communication. Most people know more about uh, about advanced algebra than they do how to communicate and the good news is that an hour of instruction can change your life. You know, an hour of math instruction doesn't do that, but an hour of learning how to communicate effectively uh, has effect in your intimate relationship with your kids, with your coworkers. It's really an incredibly powerful way to transform your life quickly. Well, do you think, Jonathan, that things are worse than they than they were, let's say, you know, in the previous generation? I mean, I know there's. I guess, I don't know, what, 50% of people get divorced and then second marriages, 50 or 60% get divorced again. So, you know, we're not doing too well in terms of the statistics. So, I mean, why do you think we're having such a difficult time these days in particular communicating with our partners? Well, I think life is more stressful than it used to be. It's more faster paced. And now we have what I call uh, WMDs, which are not weapons of mass destruction, but uh, widgets of mass distraction. You know, smartphones, texting, Facebook, email are not really deep, effective ways to communicate. You know, a thousand Facebook friends does not really equal one really good friend who's there with you. And email and texting, which we use a lot to communicate, does not deeply satisfy the soul. So we think that we're communicating, but really we're just passing information. And I think uh, our hearts really yearn for this deep, intimate connection. You know, if, if you look at the word intimacy, the instructions are actually in the word, into me see. 
And when you reveal stuff about yourself and form that special bond with somebody, it feels really good. But that's becoming a lost art because people are, are distracted and they, don't, they haven't studied how to do that even for an hour. Yeah. And I think the millennials are going to have even more difficult with it, as I see anyway, and talking to people and talking to you know other therapists, or, they seem to be more isolated. It really goes along with what you're saying. They they stay in their own, they stay in the house, and and they text and do Facebook, and they really never get out there and connect with people. So I mean, it's going to be even. It seems to me, well, you'll have more business because there's this less and less connection amongst uh, you know amongst this this generation. Um, you know, and there's another generation coming up, I guess, uh, who are even below the millennials. Yeah, you know, right now um, the two biggest epidemics in America affecting uh, even physical health is loneliness and depression, and now suicide. So those are good signs that people are connecting deeply and getting their needs met. Uh, So that's why the book has gotten a lot of attention, and I think that you're right that that, uh, for the younger generation, they're really feeling the impact of not having these heart-to-heart connections, which is what we're really, what really feeds us. What would you say, like in your practice, for instance? I mean, you see obviously lots and lots of couples with lots of problems. Are there some common issues that keep coming up over and over again? Well, there's really only two issues. One issue is the couples are blaming each other, and they don't know how to communicate without blaming each other. And the other issue is that they don't really understand each other. You know, I, n- I never have a couple come into the office and say, Jonathan, we understand each other really, really well. That's why we're wanting a divorce. Yeah. You know, but the opposite happens. They don't understand each other. They don't know what communication method would lead to that, and therefore uh, they argue and fight, which is not effective. You know, um, my wife and I used to argue quite a bit, when we got married 20 years ago, and we actually haven't had a fight for five years because we came upon a method that made it so that we never had to fight again. Well, so walk us through the method. What do you do? You haven't had a fight in five years. That, yeah. I, that, well, yeah. I, in, in the More Love, Less Conflict book, we have five different methods for doing that, but I'll explain the easiest one. And what I like in certain methods is to make them so easy that even when under stress, you can use them. So this method requires saying two words. And I can even do that when I'm livid, you know. So, uh, if, if either of us start to feel upset and we're starting to really, really get uh, angry and we know that our communication is breaking down, either of us can say the words red light. And red light signifies that we have to sit for two minutes holding hands and not say anything and just calm down. And when we don't have that momentum of upset uh, propelling us into yelling or or whatever we might have done before, uh, we can calm down and rationally work things out. So, you know, once every month or so, (laughs) one of us has red light, we take a two-minute relaxation break, and then we go back and and, uh, speak more from our heart rather than from trying to hurt each other. So do you do this in public as, as well, in private? I mean, I get it. You can do it when you're in your own house or your own home. But, like, if you're out, you're having an art or you can see something's about to, you know, is smoldering and you're going to get into an issue. Or do you do that in public? Does that work? 
I have, yeah, yeah, you know, like a restaurant or something. Restaurants, or, I yeah. mean, a heated discussion. Uh, you know, it, it's very simple, and there's a lot of simple ways to get back to a place of love when people know about it, but most people don't know any of these things. And in a way, that's really good news, because somehow the relationship is still together, uh, even though they don't have uh, the proper tools. So when you do have the proper tools, you realize, oh, well, I can create love wherever I go. I mean, the, the best predictor of how happy couples are is the number of appreciations they give to each other. Now, that's not complicated. That's not rocket science. Um, so every day, my wife and I say at least one sincere appreciation to each other. In fact, I have Siri on my iPhone remind me to do this every day in case I get caught up with stuff. And by doing simple things like that, you literally are feeding the love. And if you know how to work through the conflict, you just realize, wow, we've doubled the amount of love in our relationship in the last week by doing things that take a minute or two a day. And that's, that's a good deal. So in other words, besides listening to the show, and buying, if you buy your book and you just use these tools, you'll kind of, as you're describing, it sounds like you'll get to places you never even thought you could get to and just in a kind of very, doing very simple kinds of things and not doing things that have, you know, jeopardized your relationship in the past. But it, it, it isn't a lot of difficult stuff. Okay, the red light thing is really good. I like that. What's next? What 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 do we have to do? What what else can we do to improve communication? Well, let's try a simple method right now. I have fifty in the book, but here's a simple one. Uh, a lot of them are even just complete this sentence. So um, we've known each other all of uh, ten minutes, uh, fifteen minutes, Catherine. Um, but I already know certain things that I really appreciate about you already. So uh, something I noticed about you that I appreciate is that you're first of all, um, a very clear communicator, both before the show and during the show, and that you're, you are leading with your curiosity, not, you know, boxed questions, but really yeah. what, uh, what you're curious about, and it creates a better interviewer. Uh, so I really appreciate that about you. Now, as you share appreciations, bonds tend to get stronger, and people feel good about that. Uh, if you, even though you've only known me a short period of time, if you completed the sentence, something I noticed about you I appreciate, you could probably come up with something. You're welcome to try. I'd l- all right, I'll come up with something. You're being okay. on my show. I appreciate you. First of all, I appreciate you being on the show, but I appreciate the fact that you are articulate. Um, you're easy to converse with. Um, there is a flow. I mean, I, I guess I'm experiencing some of the same things from you that you are experiencing from me. And you're right. I am curious, and, and I'm asking questions that are related to, <laughs> also to my own relationships, you know, sort of applying it to, to, per, to my personal stuff. So I think you're right on target there. Um, yeah, so appreciation to one thing. There's, there's a lot of ways uh, on, on my uh, website, morelovelessconflict.com, I have what's called the 12 questions of instant intimacy, and people can download them for free. And these are questions that you can ask virtually anyone and always start a intimate or deep conversation with them. Because I think in this age, we want quick ways to connect because we don't have a lot of time. And we need to have these little 
guideposts that will help us to get back to that place because smartphones and Facebook and texting and email uh, certainly do not lead to deep, intimate, connected conversations. And these tools work not only with couples, but I would see these tools also would work with your teenage kids who you're having difficulties with or your aging parents or any kind of intimate relationship. There are different kinds of intimate relationships, obviously. So it's, it seems to me these, these skills, that if you can hone in on these skills, uh, it's really going to improve your lots of different kinds of relationships. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's marketed a little bit towards couples because that's just a marketing angle, but human beings are the same. They all want care, understanding, and empathy. So when you learn to give people that, they will tend to give you what you want. And, you know, it's not really just for you because when you model this stuff, your kids, your coworkers, your, your partner uh, see that it works. They see that there's something there that they like. You know, it's like you develop kind of a superpower. You know, I was a very shy, depressed kid, and now I've been able to reach, you know, a couple hundred million people, not because I'm um, a, a, a great person. It's because me or Oprah or, you know, Barack Obama, these people who came from very low places in our society, just learned to communicate in a way that inspired and elevated other people. And in this world, that's what we need. Let's. I want to get. We don't have a lot of time left, and I really am curious about how can you reconcile. And I mean, you want to use these tools, obviously, but like with couples who are, it seemingly, um, it seems that it may be almost possible in these Trump times when you have the republic. One, you know, one partner is a Republican, the other is a Democrat. I mean, I have friends who would say I would never go out with a Republican ever. That's it. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really kind of a new phenomena, isn't it? It is. Um, I mean, it's always been there, but it's much more intensified. And, you know, it's the same thing with couples who are really mad and don't understand each other. And curiosity is really the cure for these types of conflict. Understand, now, you may not agree with somebody, but if they feel understood, they won't be holding up that... that uh, uh, resistance and animosity, um, and and that will soften the defenses. So I ask people a lot of questions. I respect their feelings, and I find that I can actually change most people's opinion who don't agree with me because they feel they can finally listen to me because they feel somebody has listened and understood them. You know, just yelling at people is a great way to harden their stance and no actual communication is happening. What about if there's a basic, like, difference in values? Because uh, I can take, I mean, probably the political thing is the easiest. I mean, it boils down to we have very different values. How do you reconcile, how do you handle that? In a, uh, in a, well, when you can name and see that somebody, oh, they value safety a lot or they value uh, autonomy a lot, then you understand them and you can say, well, that makes sense what they're doing. Um, now, we all do have different values, but a lot of our values are the same. We just have different ways to get there. So one person's way to get to love and safety might be different than another. And as you understand that, you start to feel more connected. You know, when you feel more connected, real communication happens. 
and real changes of opinion even happen. But when you just um, talk about how people are idiots or they are, are cruel and, thing, and you name-call people, that hardens people's hearts, and it makes it so that nothing, no actual communication is really going on. Jonathan, okay, let's talk about some more of these specific tools that we started with, you know, the red light. Um, sure. I mean, yeah, in the book there, as you say, there are lots of them. So pick out some of the ones that you think are the sort of the, the top five that we can get into. Sure. Well, here's one that you and I can do again. Uh, if you want to know somebody it, deeply, one of the ways of doing it is to reveal stuff about yourself. So we can take turns completing this sentence. If you really knew me, you would know, uh, in this case, if you really knew me, you would know that I always am a little worried about coming off as a salesman in these interviews, because I hate salesmen, but I'm really passionate about this stuff, <laughs> so it's somewhat of a bind in that I want to say, hey, this can change your life, but I don't want to sound like I'm preaching. So if you really knew me, you know that I'm always struggling with that issue. Yeah, well, you, well, I mean, you can't help it if you're a good, it doesn't have to be negative, though, does it? I mean, you're a good salesman, and maybe that's not a good word, but you're, you're, you're you are convincing because you are passionate and you believe in, in, in what you're doing and how you're doing it. I mean, you could label that salesman, but, or marketing, but um, it, it, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, if you have good stuff to offer, which you do. Well, thank you. I, I feel understood by you, so I appreciate that. Now, that's something you could say. If you really knew me, you'd know. How would you complete that sentence? Oh, that's a, I knew you were going to ask me that. I know. If, if you really, <laughs> um, if you really knew me, I guess I said, I think some. This is sort of a not finishing the sentence. I guess I think sometimes people underestimate me. I'm, I'm uh, as a, I'm a, I'm a, obviously I'm a woman, but I'm also a tiny woman, and I'm short. And uh, initially, hmm. when they meet me, I think there's a, a risk that that they, I guess, underestimate. And then yeah. I, when I, so I have you, a big, you feel like uh, the fact that you're a woman and that you're uh, small uh, yeah. or petite that uh, people don't necessarily give you the respect or the the sense of how competent you are. And I'm sure that would be frustrating. Well, I think they, when I start speaking, they're always surprised because the voice uh-huh, doesn't, uh-huh, the right, voice right. doesn't fit the body, I guess is what I'm saying. And then things change, yeah. but that, yeah, so that's, I, I don't know if that really, yeah, I think that would, that sort of answers your, that if you really knew me. Yeah, yeah, it does. Now, you know, just, if you do a few rounds of that, you get very deep into uh, knowing stuff about each other that might have taken us six months to know or six years, but we do it in six minutes. So that's an example of a a simple tool. Um, You know, the the 12 questions of instant intimacy on my website uh, have a lot of stuff which helps to create connected conversations. Uh, So, you know, a couple might uh, ask each other, when, when did you feel closest to me this last week? And when you share that stuff, it gives each other a sense of what they're doing that leads to closeness and what they're doing that leads to more distance. And that's really important information. Or um, a time that I was triggered this week was, you know, because when you can share what triggers you and you know where your partner's landmines are and where your landmines are and you're aware of that, 
that helps you to uh, not trigger each other so much. Yeah, and I think you also, in doing this, you have to set aside time to do this as well. As you said, I think in the beginning, we're all involved in so many different kinds of things and, and, and racing and running and getting through the day. We don't take time with each other to do exactly this, and it doesn't take a lot of time at all. But um, yeah, I, I suggest that people uh, do a five-minute uh, exercise sometime during their date night or something. One, it'll help them to connect, and two, once you have valuable information, you then have it for life. I mean, take something like this. Uh, three things I really enjoy about our sexual relationship is, uh, uh, three things that I don't particularly care for is, you know, people never share that, so they, their sex life isn't as good because they don't really know <laughs> what mm-hmm. their partner likes and doesn't like. It's never been talked about. And so there's all these different ways to um, become more aware of creating more love and less conflict, and it literally doesn't have to take more than you know, a couple minutes a week. That's a great example because I think couples, particularly with sex, no, they don't take time to, to, to uh, uh, discuss their uh, sex life. or their, you know, But what they do is when they're in bed together, don't do this, do that, you're doing it wrong. That's when they start discussing. And, that's, of course, that ends up in a disaster. So this is like, uh, this is, it's, a great, it's so simple. I think that's the yeah, beauty of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sad that people don't do this or they don't know this stuff because I think love is the most important experience human beings can have. The way to get there is is pretty simple and pretty consistent, and these tools can definitely help. And it's also, you know, we want to pass on the ability to love and share love to our kids, our friends, who are in the same position, all they've learned is the language of blaming each other. And, uh, you know, love is not that. I have couples come into my office. They've been arguing for 20 years for 10 hours a week, and within 10 minutes they're back to a place of love because they're using the right technique. And I think, wow, they just wasted 20 years because they didn't know this stuff. Uh, we have two minutes left, but I do have to ask this question. Or what hmm? about love and intimacy? They're not necessarily the same thing. Right. You know, intimacy is uh, a moment of, of connection uh, where, you know, your, your guards are down. Love is really, I think, um, a feeling of, of non-separateness with a person where you, you realize that, there's, uh, that you both have a shared heart in a certain way. And the good news is as you get better at this stuff, you can feel that with more and more people. Uh, it, not, it need not be just with one person. It can be with, you know, the, the cashier, the, your friend, your, uh, the, the people around you. And when you open in that way, I think you end up being a vehicle for, for good things to happen in the world. You expand your world. Uh, we have to say goodbye. So I, I want to mention the book again, obviously, uh, More Love, Less Conflict, a communication playbook for couples, Jonathan Robinson. And Jonathan, give us the websites because you mentioned a couple during the course of the interview where we can uh, we can uh, find out more about you and what you're doing and, and about the book. Yeah, the website is morelovelessconflict.com, same as the book. And uh, people can download the 12 questions for instant intimacy for free on the website. Great. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Catherine. You're a great interviewer. I really liked it. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 
Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. 
Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Gordon Marino, Ph.D., philosophy, philosophy professor and author. Recently featured in the opinion section of the New York Times, Dr. Gordon Marino discusses the upside of envy. His essay covers everything from his own personal feelings of envy towards his peers to the philosophical complexities envy presents in every area of our lives. He notes that a colleague with 30 years experience confided in him that all the themes that of all the themes that uh, clients found difficult to delve into, including sex, there was no tougher nut to crack than envy. Dr. Marino, a former boxer, is featured in the New York Times, Newsweek, Wall Street Journal. He's also author of the Existentialist Survival Guide. Welcome to the show, Gordon. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Well, I read your essay in the New York Times, and I thought, oh, I really would like to discuss this on the show, because I think envy does just permeate our society, and it's everywhere, and I think it really is kind of responsible for a lot of bad things. Um, so let's, first of all, I, I envy, I was having dinner with someone last night, and I said I was going to be interviewing you on the show, and they asked me, they said, well, envy, jealousy, what's the difference between envy and jealousy, or is there a difference? Yeah, historically, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about that distinction, and I think envy involves a more malicious, uh, it has a malicious element that jealousy doesn't. You know, whereas when you envy someone, sometimes you you uh, you you have hostile wishes towards them as well. But it's I, I don't see any fundamental difference between the two. Okay, so we're going to be okay. So there isn't that much no fundamental yeah. difference. So yeah. envy. I mean, you start out the essay talking about your own that you're envious. I don't know if you describe yourself as an envious person, but that you are, you do envy certain things and it, and it bothers you or it's, uh, let's talk about your, I guess, let's talk about it from your just personal standpoint of you being an envious person and why you envy people and how does that impact on you? Yeah, I think I probably, I think I probably do suffer from it a little bit more than others. And, uh, my father was certainly an envious guy, and he was working at, he was working at jobs that he he really hated, and uh, uh, and yeah, he, <clears throat> so perhaps he passed that along. But in the example I talk about in there, it's a uh, what what happened was uh, as as a boxing trainer and for thirty years and everything, and uh, my whole life has been modulated by a physical activity, and that's been cut down by some operations and things. Uh, and so I'd see these guys riding by in their tights and talking about how many miles they. They rode, and I'd get, I'd start thinking of them these terrible narcissists, and you know, why don't you spend time with kids instead of logging eighty miles every day in your bike or whatever? And, and um, yeah, it struck me I was, I was just uh, that, that that judgment was very much just motivated by the desire that I wish I could do the same. So it was I motivated envy. by because I, I don't think that part that you you know you aren't able to do what you are able to do before, but you did say you're looking at all these, uh, you call them upper middle-aged exercise zealots. I mean, yeah, 60s and 70s, and they're out there running and jumping and, you know, yeah, doing all this. They brag about it all the time. I don't want to 70 miles today. Well, good, yeah. good for you. Good for you. 
But it really comes from your own loss is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Because you can't do it. Now, if you were able to do it, you wouldn't be as envious, right? Or, you, I, I mean, it's because... Oh, that, that, well, that, yeah. that's right. But also what was important to me was to recognize that my moral judgment about them was really uh, very much driven by envy. So I think it's very helpful to ask ourselves that question when we make moral judgments. Yeah, and when we don't ask that question, what are the implications for that? What happens? What well, do we do? We're just projecting a really a, a kind of base emotion into our, into a moral judgment. So, for example, in this case, I'm a, I was always like sneering at them, like you know, uh, as if to say, "Why don't you do some uh, instead of uh, this, this uh, fanatical care of the self? Why don't you uh, do some work with some kids? You know, why don't you spend some time take care of other people?" That the care, you know, and, and part of me does think that this our, our society is one in which the care of the self has gone wild. Uh, so it's not as though they're mutually exclusive, you know, uh, but that the accent, that the, the, the kind of level of animosity involved certainly came from my envy and their, their, their being able to pursue this fitness program. Well, I think also, and I think you, I don't know if you mentioned this in the essay, but I mean, I mean, social media kind of just like promotes all of that. You talk about envious. I mean, sometimes I like looking at people's Facebook pages because I want to see what's happening. But depending on how I'm feeling about myself and what I'm doing, I put it down, you know, oh, God, they've had this fabulous trip and their kids and their grandchildren are all going to Ivy League schools. I can't read this anymore. (laughs) No. No, but as I, as I mentioned, but not only that, but as I mentioned in the, in the article, the, the advertisers on television even use that. They they promote that as one of the good things about their product. If you buy this Lexus, uh, you'll, your neighbor will be envious, as though that were a positive, as though that were something uh, positive about the product. Yeah, you know? so, it's probably true, unfortunately. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. yeah, when you drive in your driveway with your Lexus, they right. are envious. Right. Uh, yeah. So it, it is. It's a great marketing tool. Okay, so what? So, but this is something that's been discussed philosophically for centuries, right? Um, it, it's nothing new, I guess. That we're just—is it, it, it just inherent in our souls, or it's just who we are, and yeah. we don't want to admit to it? I mean, it's just part of our psyche to be envious. Well, part of our psyche is uh, is to compare ourselves to others constantly, and, and maybe social media is has amplified that a bit, but one of the things that I was, that um, got me thinking about it is, uh, I, I, the, um, I, I did this, this book I just, just wrote, uh, I, I was, I tried to argue that there's feelings like anxiety and depression, they have a positive aspect to it. There's something you can learn from, and I was wondering whether or not there's much to be, that you can learn something from envy, right? Here's an emotion that just seems that means no one no good, that you can't learn anything from. And that's so I, I was exploring that issue. Can we? In, in doing uh, so, what did you find? Can we learn something from envy? Yeah, that's what, that's what I was saying. Is it, it can at least, it can at least, if we're honest with ourselves, it can tell us what we really admire and sometimes uh, even make us think twice about why we admire certain qualities, right? So, uh, um, yeah, they, one of the things that, that struck me was, I think that one of the provocations for me was somebody asked me uh, what I'd like, what, what compliment I'd like, most like to receive. And, and I think the first thought that came to my head was, you're in great shape, not you're a kind person or something like that, right? And that told me how much I valued being in condition and whatever, right? Uh, and it's not clear to me that that ought to be the, the most important 
that, that should be the first thing that comes to mind when uh, uh, about a, a compliment, right? That 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 more than anything is what I'd like to be complimented for, as opposed to being a great teacher or whatever. You know. Well, so, I was going to say, so you're this very, uh, I mean, you're a complex person, but you're also very. I mean, you are a boxer. I mean, which you know, and uh, uh, you're you're a writer, you're a boxer, you're a professor, and you know, I don't think of boxer and professor in the same sentence. So you're so I, I mean, you're accomplished in these kind of very. Different. Oh, that's not enough at all. I'm also vain. You know? <laughs> well, maybe you have to. You're vain, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but <clears throat> so yeah. So what, what? So what? I think we can look, and it's not. I don't. It's it's a nasty emotion, but I think it does tell us if we're envy of something. Then it does tell us that we we we, we value that thing, right? Yeah, so yeah. It, it is a mirror in a way. <clears throat> so if we're envious, and it's going to be helpful to us then we need to be, step back and, and really examine why we are envious. What are we envious of? It comes from us, not the other person. I mean, these, right. I mean, you, like these poor people working out at the gym and you're, <laughs> you have evil thoughts about them. I'm exaggerating. Yeah. And maybe they are working out at the gym and also doing things for disadvantaged children. You don't really know, right? So it really... Uh, some, of, some of these bike riders, that's all they do. Every day, <laughs> 70 miles, all this stuff, then it's the gym... I don't think they do that. I'm sorry. There you go. See, you hear it? Yes. <laughs> You're not going to give them a break. I'm not going to give some of them a break now. No. <laughs> but, no uh, I, but I, I understand that. I, I mean, I have a girlfriend who gets up in the morning at five for five thirty and works out for two hours, yeah. and all I do is criticize. Well, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to pull a muscle. That's really not yeah. good. You really should do something. You know, balance your and on and on. Right. So where because I can't do it. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. a good. Yeah. yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And, and, but and it's and again, it's a hard emotion to admit to ourselves. And I'm I'm not recommending that when we do discover, we torture ourselves over it. It's a, uh, uh, but rather, just kind of like pat it on the head, send it on its way, and uh, just recognize it, and be kind to ourselves in that sense. You know, like just just recognize it and not because there's also a tendency that you recognize that and to lacerate yourself, which is a, another another problem. One of the things I think you say in the essay, or you quote Kierkegaard, envy is secret admiration. Let's talk mm-hmm. about that. So, you, what do you, what is, what do you, and what does he mean by that? Well, he, he means that when we envy somebody, we, we really admire them, and so it involves admiring them. And so, it's like what I was saying about uh, it's a mirror of what we value, right? So, if I, when I envy the, when I, when I curse these, uh, these bikers and their little caps and everything going by. It's it's really a, a, I really admire them. Uh, they're they're uh, them for the physicality. So I think that's right. what you're Well, and you're talking about okay. I, obviously, uh, physical fitness is something that you envy no. and admire, right? That's your issue. Yeah, are you there? Yep. Do you hear me? Fine. Yeah. I just lost you. There you go. We're back on Skype. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. I can hear you now. Good. Yeah. Uh, I said, I think your issue, it seems to me, with envy or the the things that you're most envious of have to do with physical stuff, right? Physicality being... Oh, no. no. We could jump a little deeper. (laughs) Being in shape. Um, Money to rich people. I I'm always cursing. I have, I, I'm 
like a racist against rich people. Uh, I've, uh, I've uh, sometimes argued that people who are, who are born with wealth have no have no right to uh, pontificate about moral issues because they live in a different world. That a lot, a lot of those those view, my views on wealth are driven by envy. I'm sure. So and so, where did that come from? I don't I I don't know. I guess I feel insecure or something. And again, my father was an envious person. He had a, he had a tough life, angry and envious. So. It's. It, I don't. I'm sure where it came from, but it's there, <laughs> and I and I uh, and my recognition of it helps me to mollify it. So what right? did you? Okay, yes, and you 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 recognize that. Okay, so the envy. Your envy of rich people. So what do you? I mean, do do you address it every day? I mean, is it something that permeates your life, or something that motivates you to do certain things or make certain choices that you wouldn't otherwise do? That, that that's right. That's that's the issue. So again. Okay. Because of that envy, I'm inclined to uh, to con- condemn certain wealthy people and say they have no right to talk about certain issues because they don't know what it's like to live in a workaday world where you have to worry, where you have a boss, you know, and you know, things like that. And so, uh, our moral judgments are very important. So sometimes we need to check to see whether they're they're motivated by envy. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, so it's another sort of critiquing my own moral judgments, of assessing my own moral judgments. When you wake up in the morning, is this something that you do every day? Uh, I mean, that you are very much aware of. We're talking about envy and what you're envious of, and how it affects your moral judgments. And I mean, is this something you have to one you in particular? Do you work on having a better understanding of your motivations? Is this something you do every day? I, I always work on having a better understanding of my, of my motivations, but I, it's not like like a, some methodology for me. Uh, it's it's just something that if I feel that a certain uh, that a certain moral judgment has a certain kind of valence, I ask myself: Is there any kind of personal uh, uh, um, springboard to that? You know, is is there a personal feeling that's that's amplifying it? So, uh, yeah. Something that most of that we, I mean, ha, you know, ha, having read your essay, and now you say you have a new book. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, what, uh, talk to us about the new book. What is it? And, and what? Yeah. Okay, so it's called. It's come out from Harper. It's called the Existential Survival Guide: How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age. And the first three three chapters are anxiety, depression, death. So it's. Uh, 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 it's an attempt to um, garner from it some insights from the existentialists about how to think about these these things and uh, these these troubling emotions. I mean, one of the one of the claims I make in the in the book, and one of the things that attract me to them is that it seems to me that it's very easy. It, it should be easy to be a decent person when all the lights are green, everything's going great. But in life, there's many of us have to deal with very troublesome emotions and. Uh, uh, and the real task, the real, the real challenge in life is to be a, a loving human being when we're, when we're, uh, when we're confronted with those emotions. Well, don't so, you think everybody at some point we don't know? There's no such thing as a free lunch. That we all experience yeah. anxiety, depression, and we all definitely experience death. Um, so, I mean, nobody. Gets out is, is Scott. Everybody experiences. This I don't know. I got a guy down the street. I've been watching for years. He never seems unhappy. I don't know about that, Catherine. He never call, seems. I would hate to live down call, the street from you. Yeah, he's the happy one. I call him the happy wanderer, and I'm always looking to see these. And he seems very authentic too. On top of it, no, no. But you're right though. 
that that's the point of the book is, is that we we all do have these these obstacles to being good human beings, right? The, these inner obstacles, and uh, people like Kierkegaard give us a, a way of thinking about them. For example, in the in the chapter on uh, can I talk about this a little bit? Is that okay? Yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I have this chapter on uh, despair and depression in which I argue that the distinction between a spiritual and a psychological disorder, where despair is the spiritual disorder and depression is the psychological uh, disorder, and that uh, I claim that, look, you know, uh, there's certain emotions like envy, depression, anxiety, that are going to uh, sweep through us like, like tides, and, uh, but yet we have a relationship to those emotions. So I can decide, I, have some, I, I may not have control over what I feel, the envy I feel, but I do have some control how, over how I interpret that and what I and how and my actions that, that follow from it. So, for example, uh, one time as I was a kid, I was in a mental hospital, uh, gone through a terrible divorce, uh, and I was about 22. And uh, there was a woman there that uh, tried to commit suicide a number of times, and I always remember her coming in and trying to bring me and bringing me a cup of coffee. And I was saying, "Man, she can reach through her pain and care, even though she's just slit her wrist a few weeks ago." You know, so this ability to, to develop the ability to to reach through painful emotions and not be defined by them, and 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 one of the reasons, and as a boxing coach, one of, the, I don't think we get a lot of workshops with some of the emotions that, that define us. So, for example, as a, as a boxing coach, uh, uh, boxing is really, you know, competitive boxing is is a, is a great source of anxiety, and so I work a lot with my with my boxing students on uh, on being com- on learning to be comfortable with anxiety, not panicking about feeling panicked. So uh, a lot of the books about things like that are related, not just our emotions, but how we relate to our emotions. Well, sure given... I, that was a lecture, I'm sorry. But, uh, well, <laughs> you're a professor. That's all right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, I'm thinking about the recent suicides with Anthony yeah. Bourdain and Kate Spade. It sort of fits into, like, what you're talking about. I mean, in terms of, I mean, looking at these people, actually, uh, you know, you said in the course of the interview that you, you know, rich people, you know, sort of get off, you didn't say they get off scot-free, but, you know, they have, they they should be, there are certain things they shouldn't even talk about because they're rich. Well, you look at these two people who are very wealthy, very successful, and yet they were depressed and depressed enough to take their own lives. So, you know, how, how does that fit into, like, what we've been talking about? It's really hard. It's really hard to see because you don't. I, I don't know them, you know. But um, yeah. But but yeah. He didn't speculate about it, but the kind of a, yeah. Maybe some people uh, get a lot of the things they're they're after. Or they're successful and everything, and that's that's not enough. There's just some people. Some people just seem to have this hunger uh, that, that's so wide and deep, boundless, like they're barrels with holes in them. Like I see some of these like. Uh, people that are very well-known television talking heads on on TV, right, making millions every year, and they've got to do a book. And in every and in every segment of their of their uh, show, they're hawking the book like they really need the money or the recognition. You know what I mean? That that kind of a thing. That that is, is this hunger wide and deep, this inability to fill up. You know. So, and I don't say that's with, with these two cases, but I think that's an issue. That some people just can never get enough. They have money. They got to have power. You know. They gotta, you know so, so well, uh, we have to we have to say goodbye. We only have like ten seconds left. Um, um, great talking to you today. And I, I just go, so I want to. Well, the upside of envy is is uh, was your essay. Tell me the title of the book and a website we can go to, and then we have to say goodbye. 
Okay, thanks so much, Kevin. It's the Existential Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age by Harper One. And it can be found in bookstores, on Amazon, uh, and uh, uh, pretty much everywhere, uh, most places right now. So, Great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Dr. Gordon Marino. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 